Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. We're going to go tomorrow night into Yom HaShoah, which is the Memorial Day for victims of the Holocaust. And I just will begin by mentioning something about that. It seems kind of that you can't not say something about it with it looming so large on the horizon. And in Israel, it's already, uh, the news is already all about it. Um, we tell a story as American Jews and as Israeli Jews, and obviously between Israel and America, we make up some 90% of the Jewish people. But we tell a story of what we call from destruction to rebirth. That's the narrative that animates all the work that we do in the Jewish world. Everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we feel is built on a background of the Jewish people suffer, suffered its worst catastrophe, at least in 2000 years and maybe ever, uh, in the middle of the 20th century, but in an almost miraculously rapid way, three and a half years after Auschwitz stopped doing what it did, uh, the Jews had a country. And although that country came perilously close in all kinds of ways, economic, military, international, diplomatic, et cetera, uh, to the precipice, it always somehow figured out a way to go forward. And that has really enabled us. It doesn't matter what denomination we are, it doesn't matter, matter what country we live in, whether it's any of the diaspora countries or Israel, it's enabled all of us as Jews to tell a story of from destruction to rebirth um, because of what Israel is. And I therefore say the following very advisedly, and although it'll sound hyperbolic, I don't mean it to be hyperbolic at all. Um, Israel is at an existential crisis, and that means that its existence is at stake. And I want to make clear that what's at stake in Israel's existence is not just Israel's existence, but what's at stake in Israel's existence is the Jewish experience of all of us, no matter where we live, because we all tell that story of Chorban Libinyan. We all tell that story of destruction to rebirth. If God forbid, I don't think it's going to happen, by the way, but I do think it's a possibility, and I'll explain what I think we need to do to make sure we avert it. But if God forbid Israel were to somehow not make it through this crisis, or this were to be the beginning of a long, stay, a long decline, that you know, 50 years from now, people will say the winter spring of 2023 was when it all started. Um, it will affect not only Israel and Israeli Jews, it'll, it'll dramatically affect American Jews. Also, the American Jewish community would look nothing like what it looks like uh, if things were, God forbid, to go south in Israel in a way that none of us want to contemplate. But we actually all are contemplating, which is what brings us here together tonight. So what I'd like to do very briefly is to explain how the government and Israel got into the crisis that they're currently in. Uh, what were the supposed issues? What were the real issues? And what were the even more real issues that the judicial reform has now unleashed? So that even if 
uh, Yariv Levine, who's the Minister of Justice, were to say tomorrow, okay, forget it, I take it all back, we're dropping the whole thing. Something's been unleashed in Israel, it's not going away. And it's going to have to get dealt with uh, by extraordinarily capable and open-minded leadership. Uh, and we'll come to that in a second. <clears throat> we had elections on November 1st in Israel. It was our fifth in a series of elections. Uh, we had them all because all of the results were, were, were so close and no government was really that stable. Uh, we had elections on November 1st, and this time Bibi Netanyahu did much better than he'd done in previous elections, and he was able to cobble together a coalition of 64, 64 to 56. Uh, now, that might not sound like a tremendous, a tremendous number, but 64 is actually a fairly comfortable margin by Israeli standards, believe it or not. Um, and he was able to do that by being very smart and doing something that the left did not do. In other words, the left, the Labour Party, which... Just to give you a sense, the Labour Party is the founding party of the state of Israel. It's Ben-Gurion's party, it's Golda Meir's party, it's Yitzhak Rabin's party, it's Levi Eshkol's party. I mean, it's the founding party of Israel. Got 44 seats in the 1949 elections, which were the first elections that Israel had, and it got four in this past election. Labour Party is on its way out. It's heading towards oblivion. And that's just a sort of a symptom of the way in which the country is changing from the way in which the country looked what it looked like when it was founded in 1948. Uh, but Labor knew it was in trouble and it knew that Meretz was in even greater trouble. Meretz was the, far, the most far left Jewish party that runs for the Knesset typically. And you need to get to 3.25% of the electorate or you don't make it into the Knesset and your votes are all lost. So um, Lapid, who was the prime minister right before the elections, spent basically the entire campaign pleading with Meirav Michaeli, who was the chair of the Labour Party, to run with Meretz combined. That way, no Meretz, they were clearly going to make it into the Knesset. So that way, no Meretz votes would be lost. And two things happened. Three things happened. Number one, Michaeli said, absolutely not. Lapid was unable to convince her. Uh, number two, Lapid therefore spent the entire campaign trying to convince Meirav Michaeli and not trying to convince the Israeli people. So we actually didn't campaign in this particular campaign. He campaigned with one person and she didn't listen to him. Uh, and Meretz did not make it in. So those many, many hundreds of thousands of votes uh, were just simply lost. And the left lost all those votes. Bibi is very smart. He was unwilling to let that happen. And he understood that the smaller factions in his world were the factions to the far right. And even though he either did or did not find those factions personally distasteful, he decided to run with them. That includes Batsalo Smotrich of Jewish Power. It includes Itamar Ben-Gvir. It included Abi Maoz of the Noam Party, a kind of a virulently anti-LGBTQ party. Uh, Bibi's not anti-LGBT, by the way. That's, that one thing is very clear. Uh, but he didn't really care who he brought into the farm. He just wanted all the animals in one corral so that they would not lose any of those votes. And that's what happened, basically. If, if you look at the popular vote, so to speak. I mean, we don't have an electoral college, but if you look at the popular vote and you count the merits votes, the country was basically split 50-50. Uh, the reason BB has a majority and, and the left doesn't is because the left did not run together and the right did, and the left lost all of those votes. So the first major crisis of this government, which now seems quaint, uh, relatively speaking, was the Smotrich, Ben-Gvir, Maoz triumvirate that was brought in. If you recall, Tom Friedman wrote an article in the New York Times saying the Israel that we knew was gone. I wrote a little column saying the Israel knew we knew was not gone. Um, other than that, we completely agreed. And again, these are very, to my mind, very unappealing characters. I mean, Ben Gvir, who's now looking to have his own militia in Israel, for example, is a guy that the army refused to draft 
because he thought he was so uncontrollable and untrustworthy. They didn't even want him as a soldier. So, and now he's going to have his own militia. I don't think he's going to get that militia, but that's what he's asking for and so forth. But that was the cert, that was the first storm. And it, back then it felt like a very big storm and now it seems rather minor. The next major storm was the storm that's still going on to a certain extent, which is the storm of judicial reform. And what I, I want to explain very quickly, because it's very, very complicated, but I think we need to do, say more than they wanted to change the power of the Supreme Court. Everybody pretty much knows that. Uh, but do something between just saying that and going into all of the nitty gritties. I'm going to take like three or four minutes and try to explain what's at the core of the judicial reform. And then in Talmudic fashion, what I want to do is try to make the best case for each side. In other words, I have a, I have a, a very clear opinion. My opinion is not hidden. Uh, I'm very much opposed to the judicial reforms as they are currently proposed, which I don't think are going to pass anyway. Um, <clears throat> But I do think it's important not to say why well, I'm opposed to them, but what's the best argument for judicial reform? Try to understand those people who are in favor of it. It can't be that almost half the country is either wicked or stupid. I mean, that's just not possible. So uh, we have to ask ourselves what, what's going on here. So let's just start out with the basics. The proposed judicial reform comes in two packages, one by Yariv Levine, who's the Minister of Justice, one by Simcha Rothman, who's the chair of the Knesset Committee on Constitution, Law and Justice. It doesn't really matter. They are two very similar versions of almost the same thing. You just need to know that there are disagreements between them about certain technicalities. The idea was to severely clip the wings of the Israeli Supreme Court in four basic ways. And again, I'm oversimplifying, but giving more than just saying clip the wings of the Supreme Court. They were going to do it in four basic ways. Number one, they were going to change the constitution or the, 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 the nature of the, the committee that picks judges at all three levels, the local level, the district level, and the Supreme Court level. Israel has those three levels, the same committee that picked all of the judges. It's right now controlled fundamentally by the current judges and the Bar Association. And many people feel that that is highly anti-democratic. Now, I will remind you that Supreme Courts are almost by definition anti-democratic. Like a plurality of Americans want abortion to be legal. But the Supreme Court has ruled more or less that states have a right to make it illegal if they want to make it illegal. Um, so Supreme Courts have never been fully democratic. And part of what they're meant to do is to stop a, a runaway dem democratic government that would do something populist and not fair to minorities or whatever. So they're not wrong that it's undemocratic, but it's too undemocratic. And one of the four fundamental planks of this judicial reform is to reconstitute the nature of that committee. And the question is, how much do you reconstitute it? Um, Levin's proposal basically gave all the power to the Knesset to, to appoint judges, not actually, but for all intents and purposes, gave all the power to the Knesset. And what that means, therefore, is the Knesset would pass the laws and would be the people that chose the judges that would theoretically review the laws in the first place. But to make matters even worse, the second plank of this reform was that the judges wouldn't really review the laws. It basically did away with what we call in America judicial review. Not entirely, there would be exceptions, but there would be many, many, many cases in which the court would have no right to review legislation. Uh, and therefore, so for example, just to give you an example, according to the proposal that Rothman made, a simple majority, not necessarily 61 to 59, 32 to 30, if everybody's got the flu. I mean, whatever number you want, a simple majority, whoever shows up at the Knesset that day, could pass a law saying that all mosques, reform, and conservative synagogues are hereby closed. We don't want them. Now, 
according to the Rothman and Levin proposals, there's no Supreme Court, if they call that a basic law, there's no Supreme Court that can then review that. Now they would say, well, that's an exaggeration because the next Knesset would have to reaffirm this law or it would drop off the books. Uh, and if people didn't like the law, well, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't vote for that party in the Knesset. But there's two problems with that. The first problem is, is that for the next four years, there would be no mosques, reform synagogues, or conservative synagogues. I mean, so even if it was only for four years, that's a huge violation of people's re religious freedom. Number two, however strongly people felt about this issue, they're never going to feel as strongly about it as they do about economics, security, and so on and so forth. So they're not going to vote on their, they're not going to make their party choice based on this issue anyway. They might care about reform synagogues, conservative synagogues, or mosques, but they won't care about it as much as they care about Iran, the Palestinians, Gaza, the economy, and so on and so forth. So basically, no subsequent Knesset is going to get elected or not elected on the basis of this law, which means the Knesset can do anything that it wanted. And that's what has led to the uproar in Israel, that if you change who picks the judges, and you basically emasculate the Supreme Court so that it can't push back on anything the Knesset does, you are opening the floodgates to a highly populist regime, which is why what people say is that it's not judicial reform, it's regime change. And one of the things that's very interesting to see in Israel is on our WhatsApp groups and all of the social media in Israel, we're constantly getting little video messages from civil leaders in Hungary and in Poland speaking mostly in English and occasionally in Hungarian and Polish with transliteration, with translation, I'm sorry, into Hebrew. And they're saying, we're just telling you, this is how it went down in Hungary and Poland. In other words, first they emasculated the Supreme Court. Then they changed how the judges were picked. And then they passed all these laws. And now we are democracies only in name. So we're just telling you protesters who are out there by the hundreds of thousands, um, don't give up because they think they can wear you down and they might be able to wear you down and they are not going to give up. Uh, so it's very sobering. That's a part of the Israeli-European discourse that's not making it any way into the English press, as far as I can tell, at least. Um, the third plank is something called the reasonability clause. We won't go into it, but courts were allowed to make rulings based on a kind of a reasonableness test, uh, which they have done in a few cases, including not, including not let Aryeh Derry be a minister of the Treasury when he's a, a felon. Um, and they wanted to take that away, and they wanted to change the legal status of the legal advisors to the various ministries who are now picked by the attorney general, and their advice is, uh, is they, the minister is compelled to follow their advice. Uh, they want to make the minister able to appoint her or his own attorney and to make it in an advisory capacity only. Those seem like less major. They actually have potentially far-reaching ramifications, but Basically, what happened is when this all was sprung, and the Likud, of course, says, uh, we didn't spring it on you. We've been talking about it for decades. That's not untrue, but it's not actually true, meaning everybody who follows politics closely has known that this has been a major plank of people like Yariv Levine and Simcha Rothman and so on and so forth. Um, but no, Bibi did not mention it basically once in the entire campaign season. He'd let everyone think it wasn't a top priority. And then as soon as the ink was dry on the coalition agreements, this thing then sprung through. And much to the surprise of the government, the reaction of, the pop, of, of a huge swath of Israeli population, not the left, but the left and the center and some of the Likud. In other words, when I go to these protests on Saturday nights in Jerusalem, uh, there's always one or two people there carrying a Likud, a Likud flag. 
And it's not an in-your-face Likud flag, like, well, you think you're having an anti-judicial reform protest, and I'm here to wave my flag at you. That's not what it means at all. They're saying, I'm with you. I'm a Likud voter, but I'm with you. I'm opposed to this. And as I, I may have mentioned before, uh, the polls are now showing that if elections were held today, Bibi would drop from 34 seats to 20. So he knows he's hemorrhaging badly. And part of what he's probably doing is looking for a way down the tree uh, without having to acknowledge that he's given up. But nonetheless, the reaction to this has been vociferous because people see it, as I said before, not as judicial reform, but fundamentally as regime change, which would turn Israel from a liberal democracy either into an illiberal democracy or a non-democracy. And you see what happens to the Moody's ratings just in the last 24, 48 hours. You see what's happened to Bloomberg. You see what's happening to all sorts of prognostications about Israel that have nothing to do with the judicial system, has everything to do with how stable the international community thinks Israel would be as a community. Now, there's many subparts here, which we won't go into, um, the economics of all of this, uh, the, the split in the military and pilots refusing to train and to fly and the real moral complexity of that, uh, a very, very morally complex decision to say, I'm not going to fly on this mission. I mean, after all, pilots never said I wouldn't fly for Begin or I wouldn't fly for Rabin. I mean, they've never done that before. So this is a very, very dangerous Rubicon to cross. But on the other hand, it's a, it's a different kind of, of Rubicon. What I want to do for a second, though, is say, well, what's the argument for this judicial reform? I mean, are these people all just basically fundamentally fascists? and they want to turn Israel into something else. And I want to say something about the nature of the judiciary in Israel, number one, and the, the personal biographical histories of virtually everybody who's involved in this process, meaning Rothman, Levin, um, many others, uh, uh, Ben Gvir, Smatrich, not Maoz so much, but many of the players here have one biographical detail in common, and it's very important, and I'll come back to it in a second. The argument that they make is not entirely wrong. This Israeli Supreme Court under Aharon Barak, who was the chief justice in the 90s, uh, was a very activist Supreme Court that said openly, I mean, you can find Barak wrote lots of law review articles on this in American law reviews. You can see this everywhere. He also wrote a book that was reviewed by Robert Bork. So after this, if you make yourself a note, you can just Google Azure, A-Z-U-R-E, which is a journal that Shalem used to put out, uh, and Bork, B-O-R-K, um, and Barak, B-A-R-A-K, and you'll see, you'll see Bork's review of Aharon Barak, and you'll see the classic conservative strict constructionist response to a very activist court position. And Barak took all sorts of liberties for the court, and he read into the existing law freedom of religion, he read into existing law equality, which had not been passed by the Knesset, and so on and so forth. And I think most people who are in the center would argue that there is definitely room for some reigning in of the Supreme Court. That's not wrong, that's actually overdue. There is room for some change in the nature of the composition of the committee that picks the judges. That's not wrong, that's actually overdue. But to go as far as they're going is actually regime change, not a tweaking of something that needs to be managed a bit better. And again, we could go into all of it, but I just wanna make it clear. The idea of judicial reform is not an evil idea. The idea of reigning in the Supreme Court a bit is not an evil idea. The idea of choosing, choosing judges differently than we do now is not an evil idea. The question is, is the fix worse than the problem? And here, many, many people in Israel, including many on the right, that's the only way baby could go from 34 to 20. Um, that can only happen by people who voted for him last time saying they're not going to vote for him this time. 
Uh, and so there's many people on the right who thinks this goes too far. I wanna mention just one thing. My views are clear. I'm opposed to the judicial reform packages as they are now. I'm opposed to anything remotely close to what they are now. But again, I wanna to try to understand the people who disagree with me. Important to understand that Benvir, Smotrich, Rothman, Levin, and many others all came of age around 2005. Those are their earliest political years. In other words, 2005 is the disengagement. And what they say in various op-eds in Israeli newspapers, and even somebody like Yoel Binun, who is a very moderate voice and a very lovely man and a Talmud Chacham, a person that I personally like very much, wrote a piece about this in Makor Rishon about three weeks ago. They say, look, 8,000 Israelis were moved out of Gaza in 2005. 8,000. Cities were bulldozed. Children and parents were disinterred and reburied on the other side of the border. Synagogues were destroyed. Families were pulled apart. The divorce rate skyrocketed. The suicide rate skyrocketed. The failure of businesses skyrocketed, much of which had been predicted even before the disengagement. And they said, and the Supreme Court decided not to get involved. People petitioned the Supreme Court, the right petitioned the Supreme Court to block the disengagement. And the Supreme Court said, no, the Knesset has spoken. And they say, three houses in Sheikh Jarrah, which are owned by Palestinians, occupy the Supreme Court year in and year out. And they say, how is it possible that three Palestinian families take up so much of the Supreme Court oxygen and 8,000 Israeli Jews didn't even get a hearing at the Supreme Court? That's on an emotional level what animates them, a sense that the court is fundamentally in bed with the left and the center, fundamentally hostile to the right, fundamentally hostile to the settlement project, which is not true. It's actually been pretty supportive of the settlement project, except when settlements are built on private Palestinian land. Other than that, it's given settlers and the army wide ranging rights to do a whole bunch of things. But I just want you to understand that these people are animated by what for them was a profound trauma in Israeli history. And even if people like I mean, I actually favored the disengagement. I would now refer to the disengagement as a catastrophic mistake that Israel needed to make. In other words, we needed to see how bad it was to know how bad it was. Uh, if we had known how it would have, was going to end, it would obviously, we should not have done it, but we didn't know. Uh, but obviously, many fewer Israelis and thousands fewer Palestinians would have been killed if Israel had never gotten out of Gaza. Because if Israel had not gotten out of Gaza, Hamas would not have taken over. All those wars would have not happened. All the bombing would not have not happened. All those Palestinian civilians would still be alive. Um, but nonetheless, this for them was a major trauma. And that's on a certain level what the protests are about. The protests are about um, trying to force the Israeli government to back away from the judicial reform. Say one thing about protests. There's lots of different kinds of protests. And there's been a ton of research about what kind of protests work and which ones don't. Protests that stay completely within the line of the law have no impact, period. When Martin Luther King crossed the bridge, it was illegal. And he needed to make it clear that he was willing to violate the law in order to make it clear that he and his, his partners were not going to give up on the dream of equal rights for African-Americans in the United States. Uh, protests that look like Portland and Seattle accomplish the opposite of what they want to accomplish. People become enraged and so on and so forth. What's happened in Israel is not in any way Portland and Seattle. Exactly zero cases of looting. Zero. 
after now what is a total of millions of people in the street if you add them up week after week? Zero. There have been two cases of police using too much force. One was one stun grenade and one was one guy on a horse who was hitting a woman with a stick. Um, neither of those are okay, but it's hardly what we saw in America. In other words, the leaders of these protests are navigating a very, very fine line. They are blocking the highways. And if you're on the highway, that's somewhere between annoying and infuriating. Because if you're in labor and you're stuck behind all these cars on the highway, it's actually terrifying. So it's not a small thing to block the highways, but they're trying to navigate how do we do civil disobedience, which does cross the line from legal to illegal without showing disdain for the country. And then the last point that I'll make at this point, I'm going to make one last point and we'll open it up to the rabbis, is um, it's very important to understand that this is not about disdain for the country and that the most brilliant thing that the left and center did here was to take the Israeli flag as its symbol. And you've seen now thousands and thousands and thousands of Israeli flags. Think about protests in America. The flag is the symbol of the right, which it should not be. I mean, the left should be just as much in love with America as the right is. But for a very long time in Israel also, if you saw a protest with flags, you knew it was a right-wing protest. And the left and the center decided this time, no, we're not, we're in love with this country. That's what this is about. This is an explosion of love, not hate. And it's an explosion of love, not resentment. And therefore the flag's gonna be our symbol. That was a brilliant, brilliant move. And it has enabled many people who would have been perhaps a little bit uncomfortable joining these protests, like those Likud voters, to enable to cross the lines and saying, yeah, we're with you. We're with you because it's about this country. The last thing I'll say is this, like everything in the world, uh, you know, Obama wasn't just about Obama and Trump wasn't just about Trump. They each unleashed long-standing tensions in American life. And depending on how you feel about each of them, you ascribe, you know, responsibility differently. And we're certainly not going to go near that today. But I, but, but this is unleashed really are two very different Israels. Uh, what the right would call a European, Ashkenazi, privileged, secular elite, who they thought didn't really care that much as long as people left them alone so they could code and go public and have exits. And they were proven to be very wrong. These people care a lot. Uh, and a more religious, less privileged, Mizrahi, more culturally conservative, uh, much more embracing of religion as an instinct uh, group, which for a very long time in Israel was a minority of Israeli Jews. Uh, but is now a majority of Israeli Jews. That's just the reality of it. We are, we are a minority now. And the majority is basically saying, now it's payback time. For 75 years, you ran this country. For 75 years, you treated us the way you treated us. For 75 years, you disparaged religion. For 75 years, you did this and you did that. And now we won the election fair and square. And you're sore losers because we won. And we told you what we were running on and you lost the election and now you're disrupting the streets. It's not an entirely fair argument, but it's certainly not an entirely unfair argument, which is my point that there is a lot of justice here on all sides. This is not good versus evil. This is not pro-Israel as opposed to anti-Israel. This is a lot of things. Uh, at the end of the day, my own view is that the, the judicial reform as it's been proposed would fundamentally undermine Israel's democracy which would then fundamentally undermine Israel's economy and the desire of many people, including my children, uh, desire to stay, which in the end would actually undermine Israel's ability to survive. So it is actually an existential moment, but that doesn't mean 
that one side is all right or one side is all wrong. And what I would simply say is that we have to try to do is understand the best intentions of both sides. And to remember next week, when we get to Yom Ha'atzma'ut, uh, that even though we are really in a moment of great crisis, and I will be personally very surprised if we get through this without some violence of some sort. I will be very happy if we get through it without violence, but I will also be very surprised. Having said that, we have to hope and pray that whatever the very turbulent short term looks like, we get through it in the medium run and in the long run. And specifically on Yom Ha'atzma'ut, we have to remember that with all of the pain and with all of the worry and with all of the crisis, uh, what Israel looks like today bears no resemblance to what anybody in 1948 could have imagined in their wildest dreams. It is more secure. It is more democratic. It is more accepted in the international community. It is more almost everything than you can possibly imagine. They could have imagined in 1948. And we therefore have, I think, a kind of a complicated, emotional week coming up. We have to be very committed to whatever we're committed to on this particular issue. And at the same time, even as we're deeply worried, figure out some way of celebrating the extraordinary miracle that the Jewish state is, a miracle that is critical not only to the future of the Jews who live in Israel, but the Jews who live in the United States and everywhere else on the planet as well. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.